These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. been talking a lot about generalities at this point so let Mm -hmm. me address one of the specific aspects in these chapters that surprised me in terms of what alex decided to confirm about them because during the not dream sequence because they're not actually dreaming but while abigail is high on shrooms she experiences a conversation with mysterious character M. And unlike in previous stories, where there's an implication of, do ghosts really exist? Do the gods really exist? Here, as a result of the later conversation with Jeremy, the story itself confirms that whoever this M character is, she also exists. This isn't a mysterious point to be unpacked later, even though the fact that Abigail has had a dreamlike conversation with a person named M will become relevant in later books. This book specifically goes out of its way to say, what did this person look like? And who are these other people that you were dreaming about? Yeah, okay, very interesting. But what does it mean? Uh, I can't tell you. Sorry, you haven't read that book yet. (laughs) All I can think of is just a gif of River Song from Doctor Who saying, spoilers, as (laughs) she writes something in her TARDIS-themed diary. And yes, I know that technically Jeremy qualifies what he's saying, calling Emma only potentially real. But the very fact that Jeremy knows there is something to be found out, and the fact that the story goes out of its way to highlight this, means that we as the audience shouldn't simply ignore it. And there's an important subtext that goes along with said confirmation. It allows Alex to reveal that this is one more seed that will be important later. Its inclusion Mm. in the narrative is significant, because since we know M is real, that means that the things James and Abigail experienced are themselves significant, that they aren't just merely hallucinations. There is something of value that was garnered out of the whole thing rather than just the two of them being on a humorous trip that turned into a very depressing trip. This isn't just a comedy point. This chapter does in fact set up important plot and character developments to come. And if the Wendigo's roar of approval from outside is any indication, I think they agree with you. Yeah, it's a method of ensuring that the chapter doesn't feel like it was a waste or Mm -hmm. that the characters reached a dead end as much as I think James probably feels like they did at this point. Well, that's a part of his ongoing theme, too, is that Mm. he feels like he had some kind of experience, but it continues 
to leave him in this place where he's constantly brought low by the fact that no matter what else happens, mm. he is unable to make progress with his own understanding of the endowment. Yeah, and both James and Abigail leave the experience profoundly disappointed and shaken, but it's for different internal reasons. For mm. James, it's very utilitarian, practical, but nevertheless personal, that he wants to be of use. This was a means by which he might be able to unlock his abilities and therefore be of the best use he could possibly be. He has run out of options and he's just stuck with an inert ability that if he even has one, he just feels as if he is at a dead end where we've discussed this before and we will talk about it in more detail again in the future, but he's no longer as capable as he once was at the thing that he spent his whole life tailoring himself to refining his abilities at and they've just taken a permanent dent because of this and he hasn't gained anything out of it in Every... point of fact he even feels the end like it's almost not quite at a deficit but the whole process of doing this has left him feeling more exposed as well to mm. Annie, to Frank, witnesses to what happened, but also in terms of his relationship with Abigail, because the two of them admitted things to each other that they never necessarily said aloud, and now mm. it leaves them more vulnerable than even before, and that's also the mm. feeling that leads into finding out the Arlingtons are dead. It's so much so that he <coughs> mentions that he hasn't been able to bring himself to re-listen to the tapes, that mm. everything about that whole experience and that night is all still too raw for him to revisit it. And Abigail, she's shaken quite personally because what she took out of the experience wasn't quite so utilitarian-focused, partly because she, she already is on a path where she's understanding her abilities a bit more. She she has a lot more left to learn, but she has already gained something from the abilities and therefore has less to prove to herself when it comes to finding a way to understand what this life change has given her that James is on. Well, but see, that's the thing, is that as far as Abigail is concerned, whether she has gained anything from the experience has yet to be revealed. But the mm. reason why she comes away from it shaken is because her experience is literally a representation of the thing that she's always been denied her entire right. life. We're going to be talking right. more about this in a couple of chapters when we get to the big conversation between Annie and Abigail. But from everything that we've discussed beforehand, she's always desired freedom, desired mm -hmm complete agency over her own life mm. and while she was in the middle of this experience she had a version of that that she comes crashing back down to earth from mm. and that's part of the reason why it's hit her as hard as it does yeah that's the thing is that abigail is always so frustrated and saddened by how constrained she feels mm. in 
both a personal and grand scale mm-hmm. at the different points of her life. When she has that cosmological experience, she feels completely unbound and untethered from reality while simultaneously engaging with an emotional plane of understanding that feels more real than anything she's experienced up till now and when it she comes crashing down she's stuck in this world which constrains everyone if centrum had carried on on its path and by this toby means if the wind doors had never opened and things played out the way they did in our history she would have felt a lot of the similar feelings of constraint and frustration of just, like, her place as a woman in 19th century America and all the structures and everything going on there. And the fact that the world has disintegrated, that it went off on this path, and yet those same fucking structures still persist, that there are still, like, a weed, it keeps coming back within the human population there is always people who keep pushing this same framework of narrative whatever that we just need to get back to civilization and civilization was the way it was before and we need to let all of those same old ideas just fester and it's just like really even after all this after everything has changed it's still there I think in some ways that's why when she was thinking about a world without humans, she's able to embrace that because that is kind of an ultimate liberation Mm. in a like it's not one that she isn't necessarily courting and it's not one that we as the reader should court either because it is essentially the death of all of us. But you are at least understanding and perhaps even sympathetic to the point of maybe the way to be free from all of this is if we're just free from people. Toby's words here make me reflect a little on Seth, the offer that he made to Annie, the argument that he made to Thomas. When the world that exists seemingly causes what feels like nothing but suffering, it's a seductive idea to think that a way to end suffering is to merely wipe the slate clean because attempting to change it in any way will generally always require effort and more suffering along the way. And wouldn't it just be a good idea to stop? But that can't be the end goal. In attempting to end all pain, you are also ending all the good things that can come from life. And if you'll pardon the fact that I'm about to draw on four different movies to build my argument, it's also a bad idea to try and avoid negative things altogether. Just look at Inside Out as a reason why that's bad. When the man in black says to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, he isn't just being cynical. He's saying something true. Life costs. It requires effort and work. Taking the easy way is called the dark side for a reason. But it's not wrong for Abigail to think on this idea either, because just like Annie, One has to face the temptation before being able to refuse it and work past it. I feel like we're hitting an interesting nail on the head here Mm. in terms of the overall mindsets of both James and Abigail. Mm. Like, if we looked at it from the traditional nine-box grid of alignments, 
as so mm. often happens with geeks. On one end, you have the lawful good James, who draws comfort from establishing order and therefore is ruffled when something comes along and destroys that order, such as gaining the endowment and losing the order that he's created for himself being a doctor. And then mm. on the other end, we have chaotic good Abigail, who bucks against order at every opportunity and longs for the freedom that chaos can potentially provide her. <laughs> wow. We And on that same note, to a certain extent, as we have been recording this episode, we had a structure laid out for us. We have like gone over like none of our notes. All of the <laughs> stuff that we have gone into since like, you know, the break getting into this has been practically just stuff like that we've uh, talked about here and now. But you know what? I think I needed this. I think the fact that we've just been completely running off the cuff and just, just bouncing from one thing to another, I feel energized in a way that I haven't for a while. So good. I guess this, this was the chaos that I needed too. There you go. I think that's why we have James and Abigail as mm, mm. points of view here, that you shouldn't necessarily scrap one for the other. There is no sort of natural final destination with which we find this character is the one who is right. You're the child of the prophecy. Really? No! <sighs> prophecy. <sighs> you jackass. It requires this balance of characters. That's why ensembles are always a brilliant thing and why I love that practice of reading that Sharon so often will approach stories and films with, which is the idea of the different characters of a story representing the different components of a self, whether it's a individual psyche and an individual person or the collective soul of humanity you need to look at and piece together the different things that are kind of essential and antithetical to our survival out of this and having this ensemble of heroes looks at all the things that can feed into progress and how sometimes they may seem like they are unmixable, that they are just these elements that will bounce off one another, but that doesn't necessarily stop us being able to benefit from having each of them alongside one another. The best things are created from many different ingredients in exactly the right amounts. And that's right. true whether we're talking about recipes for food, it's true if we're talking about alchemical mixtures it's true if we're talking about individual or group relationships and it's very true when it comes to media greg when it comes to the multiple different th things that we must draw upon in order to navigate our lives and advance towards and hope for a better future i propose that we would open many boxes <laughs> yes it always comes back to the boxes! <laughs> and now that we've had a chance to have a bit of chaos and a good laugh, here is where we return to the order of our previously catalogued notes and turn our attention to the somber events of Chapter 16.
Yeah, I think that's healthy. Just as we've been talking about James and Abigail being at a low point after the experience of their drug trip, that is then brought to an exclamation when news of the death of Sarah and Thomas come to our group, leading into the final chapter we are discussing today, Devastation. Steamheart has barely begun its journey, and with no successes yet under its belt, now the news has come of the assassination, and that's enough to stop us and Team Steam in their tracks, not just because Harry is unable to function. Chapter 16 is about the different ways people respond to the news, and Devastation is exactly the right title choice for this moment. The emotional tenor is very like the Fellowship escaping the minds of Moria, but without Gandalf. You hit the nail on the head with the Fellowship comparison. That and the midway death of Phil Coulson in Avengers Assemble are both moments that hit home for the eponymous groups that because they failed before they even have a chance to not even succeed, to just try, here Steamheart are hit with the most deflating thing narratively. They are barely out of the gates before the architects of this venture are reported dead. It would be the equivalent of the Fellowship leaving and then receiving news that Rivendell burned to the ground and Mm. put to the torch. And even if their orders stand, the momentum that felt so freeing and unbound by earthly limitations just a few chapters earlier, it comes to a grinding halt after being wounded by the unsuccessful experiment with the mushrooms that, as you like, you yourself uh, put just a moment ago, it leaves our characters vulnerable because they've just failed. It like, or they feel as if they've failed, mm. and now it feels as if they've been wounded beyond repair at a moment of vulnerability. It makes their ultimate purpose of understanding and using these endowments to mend the world feel further away than they ever have been. The fact that it hits the pilot slash engineer, Harry, that keeps the engines moving is all the more cohesive in making the venture of Steamheart feel fundamentally compromised from the outset. The person who keeps this moving has all of the drive pulled from her. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of Harry, there were a couple of things that I did want to go over. Apart from Annie, who we hear her response upon first reading Troops Telegram, the sh- look of shock on her mm-hmm. face at reading the words. Harry is the only character who we see her immediate reaction to learning the deaths of Thomas and Sarah, and I think that's exactly as it ought to be. Mm. Everyone present has developed some form of relationship to one or both of the Arlingtons, not just coming to respect them or understand their importance from a distance. When we hear of their grief and despair, it's reported to us, described as it existed over a span of time. Harry gets that too, but in the audio drama, we hear Loretta portray the moment her world collapses firsthand, and it makes the deaths of Thomas and Sarah feel immediate and fresh all over again. The other thing I wanted to run past you was something that did confuse me. 
In chapter 15, it ends with the first message that Truth sent Annie and the group, and the chapter ends with... Oakley, stop. Do not tell Harry yet. Stop. When we get to chapter 16, we hear the subsequent messages that Truth sent, and message number three asks Annie to break the news to Harry gently. So how long is meant to have elapsed between those messages? I know that after the news is broken, things stopped for Steamheart for a number of days, and it's also likely these messages were sent over a span of time, but Seahart is just now receiving all of them after arriving at this outpost. But am I missing something if I'm still a little confused why we have Truth request it one way and then a very different way with breaking the news to her sister? I don't know, it just could be that she wanted Annie to read through and understand all of her messages and the information and her orders before telling Harry, rather than tell her straight away before reading the rest of the report. We don't necessarily know how it actually all played out time-wise, and that's part of the deal there, is that when the telegram was sent, it wasn't sent directly to Steamheart, it was sent to an outpost. It's entirely possible that because Truth would have no way of knowing when they would get the messages, that like one was sent immediately to get that information out, because it's an also entirely possible that like cartographer commanders would also need to have this information, although I expect they might have been given that information separately. <sighs> given how chaotic everything was, and given the nature of the four messages that were sent, it's very likely that there was a span of time between the individual messages, because even though Truth was the one sending all of them, she very likely had to consult and confer with other people before some of those decisions could be made. Mm. She just obviously could not control when they got those messages. But based on the way it was laid out in the uh, novel, at least, there is a suggestion that all four messages were sent over the course of at least one day. And the way the written version of the story is laid out, Harry's VoxTube recording response to it is actually a day later. Mm. So four messages are, the, are April 27th, and Harry's VoxTube recording is April 28th. Right. So it's okay. entirely possible that Annie might have gotten all that information before revealing it to everybody else, not just Harry. But we only see the aftermath of it, so we don't actually we can only surmise what the sequence of events in terms of when what was revealed to whom. It was only after our recording that I was able to compare Arlington to Steamheart and come up with a more refined timeline. According to Raven's article in the final chapter of Arlington, the assassination happened April twenty sixth the same day that Abigail and James had their mushroom trip that evening. The end of Chapter 15 of Steamheart doesn't say when during the 27th that they made it to Columbus, but I suspect at least Message 1 had already arrived there by the time Steamheart arrived. Because I was curious, I also looked at the limitations of the telegraph. Based on the maximum working range of a telegraph signal, the distance from Columbus to D.C., and the rate of five words per minute, 
I expect messages came very quickly from D.C., even if there was, say, a single way station in between the two cities to ensure signal integrity. Regardless of the exact timing of the messages, however, based on what Annie talks about in her journal entry, I expect she also needed time to absorb the information so that she could offer it to the others and to Harry without herself cracking. As you say, the impression that we get from this is that we're seeing a progression of the situation as it existed in Washington relayed to us and to Team Steam in these segmented, separated drops that are just coming their way, with the first one very obviously being as close to the immediate aftermath of the assassination as possible. But mm. she sent this when she was just sending the initial word out and the words and the delivery and the audio drama makes it feel the most difficult for these words to be spoken by truth. And as further messages come out, there's a bit more, as you say, consideration has been given, whether it's just by truth or through conversation and collaboration with other parties. And therefore, we have this slow sense of regathering, even mm. if it still feels like a monumental shattering has just occurred. It's this feeling of gathering some of the shards and imposing a little bit of order. And it would make sense that the very first message, when everything feels so uncertain and like unknowable, that for just that moment, she doesn't want Harry to know yet that she has to think it through. And it takes until the third message for her to be able to say, Please break the news to Harry. Gently. Stop. You know how people always say, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? There's something that I've learned over the course of my working life, mm -hmm. which is very often, and this directly relates to that good news, bad news, is that if you have a problem to report to your supervisor, to your boss, the best way to do it is to say, here's the problem I have. I also have a potential solution for you. Mm. That you want to ideally present a cohesive plan for if you have a problem, here's something we could do to solve it. Or alternately, here's how I did solve it. Do you approve of that? What should we do going forward and everything like that? That it's better to present that you aren't just throwing an issue at someone's feet for someone else to resolve, that you yourself have given it some thought or taken some action within your own ability in order to try and solve it. It's always been my experience that people in charge like it when you present them a problem, and the solution at the same time. Mm. And so, while this is not in that same vein necessarily, it seems clear that Truth is working from a perspective like she needs to present some semblance of order in the wake of this chaos before having the terrible outcome mm. revealed to anybody. As you were talking about a moment ago, they have to make it feel like there's still somehow a plan, and that's what truth mm. is trying to provide. Mm. 
the place that my head goes to is just that bit in the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. I have a plan. You've got a plan. Yes. First of all, you're copying me from when I said I had a plan. No, I'm not. People say that all the time. It's not that unique of a thing to say. Secondly, I don't even believe you have a plan. I have part of a plan. What percentage of a plan do you have? You don't get to ask questions after the nonsense you pulled on Nowhere. I just saved Quill. We've already established that you destroying the ship that I'm on is not saving me. When did we establish? Like three seconds ago. No, I wasn't listening. I was thinking of something else. Oh. She's right. You don't get an opinion. What percentage? I don't know. 12%. 12%? <laughs> That's a fake laugh. It's real. Totally fake. That is the most real, authentic, hysterical laugh of my entire life because that is not a plan. It's barely a concept. You're taking their side? I am Groot. So what is better than 11%? What the hell does that have to do with anything? Thank you, Groot. Thank you. Even though I've gone on the record as not being that big a fan of the Guardians movies, I have to admit that that scene was brilliant, and it gives me a hankering for covering the Princess Thieves. I love Steamheart, but most of the arguments in this book feel more serious than comedic, and the screwball nature of the Princess Thieves is far more in line with this kind of scene. That said, back on topic we go. That's just off the cuff what I surmise was the potential thought process of truth in mm. terms of there's no good way to reveal to your sister that her parents are dead. So at the very least, you can try and make it feel like that there is some way to move forward. Mm. I don't have a huge amount more to say on that particular point, just because when it happens, you feel stranded with the characters. Mm. I think that's the word of this particular point in the story these characters are stranded yeah not to put a fine point on it but that's again that's what writing is supposed to do as we were discussing earlier is to bring the audience into the experience and help them to empathize with what is going on because obviously even though stories are often supposed to be entertainment they're supposed to be a way of taking us out of ourselves and not think about our own individual issues. A good story always has conflict. It always has pathos. It has people that have bad things happen to them, but because they are so very often heroic personalities or even just people that are able to take problems in their lives and move on from them, to be hopeful make progress in whatever problem that they are coming up against to inspire us to also give ourselves the hope that you so often uh, refer to in terms of that uh, wonderful Ira quote. That's one of the important aspects of stories. They sometimes have to take us to these dark places so that we can see others recover from them just as we need to recover from our own darkness. Mm. Hope and bravery are not the things that exist in perpetuity, mm. born out of nothing and affected by nothing. They are assailed and complicated by the messiness of the world around us. It's mm. something that can be so easily reduced. Ideally, the flame of hope is never 
completely snuffed out. It only putters low, and we have to find a way to build the flame back up again. This is a bit of a cyclical concept that may sound inane, but I think it's nevertheless the most accurate way to describe it, is that we must hope that hope itself is something that can come back to us. Hmm. Tautological is what you're... It's tautological, yes. But nevertheless, that is something that we have to give ourselves almost at times when our fears and our concerns are so bad, so overwhelming. At a certain point, it's an act of faith that is Mm. born out of nothing than just hope that it can lead to something, that you can find a thread to hold on to and lead yourself back onto the path out of it. Yeah, but that very thing that you're talking about is also why when someone is in the middle of despair, they also have to be wary about other things that are a threat to building that hope back up, which is one of the components of this chapter. At one point, Frank suggests a detour and uh, heading towards Annie's home of Dark County. We already know the significance of this place, thanks to Annie's flashback chapter, and as a result, we also understand why Annie might be recalcitrant to return. It does make us wonder a little bit how much Frank knows about her past, or if ultimately, when the two of them decided to make a life together, part of her wanted to leave her past behind because of all of the emotional pain and suffering she experienced as a child. Yes, we've seen the good elements of her childhood along with the bad, but it seems possible that those good parts of her childhood might be outweighed by the loss and the suffering, and that therefore going to Dark County would have the opposite effect, making it more difficult to come back from despair rather than being able to glom onto any positivity that might have come from seeing her old home or the places that she went to as a child or anything like that. Rather like how Rebecca Wolverton was recalcitrant about ever returning to Ravenwood. On top of that, the book itself describes about how Dark County is in places dilapidated, and if seeing her old home like this is part of what contributes to her depression, and that's why she needs to say to Frank, I have it here in my heart, I don't want to re-experience it, because that might cause her to just further lose control. We already see through her own narration that she is just holding on to it with her fingertips. Mm, that's right. I, I reckon that Frank knows most of Annie's past, considering she shared what appears to be many of those details with Abigail just a couple chapters earlier, what we were talking about of like some of the things that the writing mm. enables us to skim over but still take on board that, yes, Abigail now is aware of some of the things that we ourselves as the audience just learned. Mm. 
the understated tone of the scene where Frank is suggesting mm-hmm. the possibility, not necessarily saying, let's go there. It's just kind of putting it on the table mm-hmm. and making Annie aware that he is doing so without committing to it. He's not broaching too many boundaries. Yes, steering towards that area does cause Annie to confront something that he must know is difficult for her to consider, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't take the craft all the way there. He takes her up to the door and asks, without unnecessarily prying, if she wants to re-enter this space. And when she answers with an assurance that what she carries at this place with her is a capacity that she can be at peace with, he easily and gently steers their mobile home away from this possible diversion without objection. It's a far cry from uh, something we talked about last time, which was when Abigail kind of gets to that point, but she still keeps going. Mm. Her and Frank were in the forest together, and his being bugged by that, I think, is a good indication of why Frank handles this situation with more care. No, you're absolutely right. Even if he knows about her past, he can't necessarily be sure what's going to be a trigger and what's not at this point. Knowing the facts of what happened is different from actually being in Annie's head and therefore understanding on a one-to-one, if X happens, then Y is the result. Especially when they're dealing with this new unseparatable factor of grieving over the Arlingtons. Mm -hmm. It makes for an interesting character moment, which, as you say, contrasts very well with that earlier conversation between Abigail and Frank. So thank you for pointing that out. I hadn't actually considered that. New Century, as we have routinely gone into, is about grief. Mm -hmm. And this is a world of people who are contending with that every day. What I think is an accomplishment of the series and is so present in Steamheart is that we are seeing that series has a philosophy that so many of its characters embody and share, but that doesn't mean that the characters will be perfect mirrors to one another of this general philosophy of new century they will have differences in how they handle grief Mm. and sometimes those differences will step on the toes of other people even if for the vast majority of their personality they really do get along it's important that we see things that even for two characters who have never really had to butt heads before that we see there are things about who they are which are different that is not always an easy thing to navigate, even for someone who seems to have as much of a control as Frank seems to have. Mm. So we have one more topic on the list, or at the very least a tiered topic, Mm -hmm. specifically what's going on in England and why Jeremy can't talk about it. (laughs) Greg, what's going on in England is a question I ask every day of my life. (laughs) Ooh, well played, sir. Well played. Yes, okay, that's that's very fair. That's very fair. But let's, let's deal with the comparatively more easy uh 
question of what's going on in England in a world where England is dealing with redacted. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we warn ye here beyond this point be dragons. We are going to discuss not why... literally. Well, no, we're not going to we're not going to discuss dragon literally. We aren't even going to get into whether there are dragons on the other side of the ocean. But we are going to discuss why it is that Jeremy is not able to talk about it because it does relate back to things that are components in stories we have discussed before. The spoiler talk does go for the entire rest of the recorded episode, so you can jump out here. But if you want to hear other things like my musical outro and some select outtakes, you can jump back in around 59 minutes, 40 seconds. The interesting thing with this entire part of chapter 16 is that Jeremy not only can't say what's going on in England, he can't even get into why he's not allowed to talk about it, because maybe he doesn't even necessarily know why. But you and I can surmise, based on everything else that we've read, is that even though we don't necessarily know why Thomas ordered not to reveal what's going on on the other side of the ocean, we can speculate about it. All the way back in the cartographer's handbook, Thomas Arlington established a narrative. One of those things being... We're setting things up so that you can't escape into the west of North America because we're putting up these, you know, guard posts and everything like that. And it doesn't matter what's going on on the other side of the ocean because mm -hmm. we already know that Wendigo came from there. And based on what we have found out, specifically punctuated by Carmen Santos and her final message that she got from the other side of the world, there is no help coming from that place, and it is potentially no safer than it is right here. So we have to deal with the problems we have right here and now. This is basically to help encourage all those that remain that the only way we're going to survive is to work together. And that's why not telling anybody, even members of the cartographers, that, you know, there might be a solution to the Wendigo on the other side of the ocean. We don't necessarily want them following up on that. Mm. You know, in several School of Movies podcasts recently, and just in the School of Movies like Discord community, I feel like a talking point that has come up has been the idea of subsequent installments that have enriched previous installments, mm -hmm. possibly ones that we weren't necessarily as attached to or didn't really meet the same level of quality as some of the others. And I feel like the best compliment that I think Alex would probably be happy to hear about is that I appreciate the cartographer's handbook more and more the further into New Century we get. In some ways, the cartographer's handbook is not unlike the Silmarillion. That book was originally conceived as a more epic continuation of the world first introduced in The Hobbit. But when the collection of mythopaic stories was rejected by the publisher as being too obscure and foreign, those myths became the background material for the trilogy we all know and love, The Lord of the Rings. When the trilogy became a huge success, Tolkien intended to re-edit and make these myths into their own published work again, 
but he died before that happened. It took the work of his son and Guy Gabriel Kay to edit it into a completed work, and even then it wasn't nearly as well received. We've already gone over the handbook in detail, its flaws and its strengths, but the fact that it continues to provide context for later stories is part of the reason why it works as well as it does as its own story. The key difference, of course, is the fact that the handbook is written by someone that we've met in the world, who is myth-making the RSA to his own goals. The cartographer's handbook as an artifact is a curious one because it is set up to be a source of information on the current state of this world, in-universe and outside of it, it, like, as a book. And at the time of its release, we had to take it as gospel because mm-hmm. we had no other choice. It was the only source of information. But as time goes on, and we do get to see more of this world, and we learn more about it, we learn more about what that first book got wrong. Uh, or not even that it's wrong, that it sort of misled us, and it becomes more complicated than we initially were led to believe it was. It felt like quite a simple book, and it just gains these little aspects of complexity. And I think that's why, for as much as it feels like a book that New Century has evolved beyond, and I think everyone is happy about that, including the author, it's nevertheless this important artefact, a foundational artefact, one of Alex's planned books is kind of a spiritual successor to the cartographer's handbook. I would be fascinated to see how those two bookend one another, that we have one at the inception of New Century, and now we, like, we possibly will have one that after so much more of this world is known and explored. The thing I want to highlight, based on everything you just said, is that Because the cartographer's handbook is both a piece of fiction, but also exists as a part of the world, there is a certain dramatic irony behind the fact that parts of the cartographer's handbook is also a fiction inside the world itself. It is the unreliable narrator, giving us some of the truth, but not necessarily presenting us with all of the truth. And some of it are untruths that Thomas fostered, and some of it is untruths that even Thomas didn't realize were untrue. But I won't get further into that for now, since most people have gotten through Stone Spring Maidens at time of recording, and this revelation is contained in one of the books that has only been released in written format. And I have no doubt that at the time of the the cartographer's handbook's writing, if Alex knew at that point that he was putting together a thesis on the world of New Century, but through the lens of an unreliable narrator, that what his true conception of what the state of New Century is, it was a mixture of few things that he had thought ahead and planned out, and some shit that, because he didn't know what New Century would be. Like a lot of the stuff, I think the best thing is to make it look like when you do things right, people won't be sure that you did anything at all, which yes. is this idea of you examine the elements that you have at your disposal, 
use them to the best of your ability and people will go oh you magnificent bastard you planned it all along and you'll be there with the assembly of train tracks like tucked away in the corner it's like yep absolutely <laughs> i planned this from the beginning <laughs> yes exactly that's a trick of the trade of any creative mind and it's one that i learned to make use of thoroughly whenever i was doing tabletop game dming mm-hmm. is that you know certain things i i keep in stone and certain things i leave loose until i find the right puzzle pieces and slot them together and say to myself, okay, now this thing that I decided not to explain in the past makes sense, and mm-hmm. I can unveil it to my players and have them marvel at my creative mind, being like, oh my god! So, yes, absolutely. Before we uh, move on, I will sort of cycle back to the specifics that we had planned. This is a real great mix of order mm. and chaos, this particular episode. I love yeah, it. No, I think but, we're doing really well with all of this. But in terms of what Thomas, like, what his motivation is, I think from Thomas's point of view, any thoughts of looking to outside the established borders for salvation rather than working on the known quantifiable land they currently occupy, it's a distraction. Thomas demands total and undiluted focus of the remaining population of America because he believes it's absolutely essential for their survival. Anything that fragments people from putting their all into what he believes is their best bet is just going to lower their chances of success. So why release that information that can't be acted upon and will just harm their mission? It's the same reasoning and you know, or at least part of the same reasoning for his disdain of drink, because it's a distraction. Not just a distraction, but it it is an element of chaos. Mm. You can't necessarily control yourself, and you can't Mm. necessarily control others if they Mm. are drunk. The cartographer's handbook is a reflection of the author's mind. Mm. He is cutting off other avenues... Yeah. Not because they couldn't be successful, but because mm-hmm. they invite more chaos, and he views the chaos as being a threat to the safety of all. He is not like Abigail, who doesn't necessarily invite chaos wherever she goes, but certainly isn't as bothered by it because she values the freedom that comes from choice. And mm-hmm. Thomas... She, is very clearly, as a part of the cartographer's handbook, trying to (laughs) deny choice. Abigail does not invite, actively invite or seek out chaos, but she is open to it. Mm. And that is just something that Thomas uh, could never have been. I think that what the cartographer's handbook was to Thomas, it was a delivery of hope, but it was a very cultivated hope of a selected type it's not the hope that comes from possibility it's the hope that comes from a plan yeah this is the plan do not deviate from Mm. the plan we can get hope from conviction and certainty in one idea and if we dilute it and spread it across we will fracture of course It's also important to clarify that it wasn't merely about desiring survival based on what Thomas thought best. 
At one point, Thomas says outright that he didn't want credit for the handbook, and he would be fine if it had no official author. To Thomas, sticking to the plan was important to him because he understood that American society wouldn't change unless it was forced to. There are elements of Western society in general, and American society in specific, that are toxic. And the idea of making it seem like the only way to survive as a species was to eschew those toxic elements and show a better way of working together? Well, I can see why that would be compelling, especially in light of the march of our own history. So Thomas uses the handbook to remove potential choices from the board in order to make it seem like his idea is the most cogent option. Now you may well ask, is what Thomas doing a form of tyranny? And we will talk more about these ideas later, but there is a flip side to why Thomas doesn't want people seeking either refuge or aid from the other side of the Atlantic. And given what the Princess Thieves reveals about what's going on in Great Britain, it's easy to understand why. We also have to admit that as people that understand the Duarte and mm-hmm. the motivations of Coriolanus. That's a new word. That's yes, a well, new word. We're already doing full spoilers here. Yeah, we're in full spoilers. It's yeah. fine. But the point is, is that if Thomas has any inkling as to what the Dewart are like as a people, never mind if he has intel on Coriolanus and his potential plans for the other countries on the European continent, Thomas would very definitely see the Firecasters as more of a threat to reconstituting the reunified states of America because he doesn't have an answer to that yet. They Mm. are more chaos, and they have magic, so he wants to encourage unity within the people of America first before they start trying to handle problems on the other side of the ocean. Yes, they have some degree of being invisible behind the fog of war, because they are on the other side of the ocean, and Coriolanus might not be aware of them yet, but if a request for aid or refugees appear, then it might get the attention of somebody in power, and they might see the Americas as a new territory that they can take with little resistance. So Mm. from that perspective, and because we have the knowledge of the motivations of those in power in England right now, we can see why We don't necessarily want that information to get around. Again, it's a source of chaos, and therefore that information must be controlled in order to not invite chaos. I'm unsure exactly how much Thomas and the government of uh, the reunified states would know with certainty when it comes to the Duarte, or at least the Duarte's plans of expanding their empire. I suspect, as has become apparent from conversations so far in Steamheart, that Thomas has an inherent uh, distrust of anything coming through the windows. Like, the initial plan is to close any and all of them, if possible, and contain whatever has come through. The Duarte may be on Thomas's radar, but I suspect the full impression of them is still hazy enough that they are much less of a known entity than the Wendigo, and even their nature is being radically and recently redefined with the emergence of Seth and this uneasy truce. I 
refer to the Wendigo here, the Wendigo are being redefined in like just the last couple of weeks, let alone like, you know, the broader time frame. But the Dwarf being a largely unknown factor is more than enough reason, I think, for Thomas to avoid including them as an active effect on the reunified states for as long as possible. As Thomas says when referring to James and Abigail, I don't know them. And that is enough for him to put countermeasures and backup plans in place. And they're appointed reunified states agents. Why wouldn't he be inherently mistrustful of another otherworldly presence whose existence threatens to destabilize the temperamental balance of this world? Even if you removed the Duarte and any intel that Thomas has of other otherworldly entities that are having an effect on different countries across the planet, even if you got rid of all of that, I think it's actually quite easy to see why Thomas would be mistrustful or reticent to look to aid from across the seas for a number of reasons. Mm. Even before Thomas, America is still a relatively young country in the broader, like, international... Yeah, I mean, they got a hundred years under their belt, but you're right that that's... It's not as long on the span of a lot of the other nations Mm. on the European and African and Asian continents, so... Sure. Considering he's trying to kind of get this own known land of his in order before a part of the world that is historically known for imperialist and colonialist sensibilities would come marching on their doorstep. Like, if his own countrymen are voicing sentiments of returning to the old ways, why wouldn't he have misgivings about being indebted to Mm. a part of the world that had, at once upon a time, viewed this as an extension of their own empire? Um, yeah, no, you're not wrong. You're right that that his mistrust is both a reflection of his personality, but also based upon historical precedent. I just think, based on Jeremy's questions, that they probably do know a great deal about what's going on on the British Isles because of the vague way he asks about, are there other creatures that you saw Mm. that he might know about things like say unicorns or magicians part of the reason why i suspect thomas was as well informed as he was is because we already know there's at least one agent one character that was on the british isles right up until recently that our heroes are going to meet in a little while yeah i was you know i was just like thinking to myself like so back in my brain, how is it that they would have had like this intel? And you're completely right. There is someone who would have had a lot to say and be able to relay to Thomas. And it's like, you know, so tell me, like, what's the story over there? And that character probably would just take a long drink and say, where you... do I even begin? Yes. And I love how we're being so coy about what character mm-hmm. this is, considering this is 
This is the part that's supposed to be up behind spoilers. Well, just in case. Yeah, so just in enough. case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly so. I, I want to make when we talk about that character special mm-hmm. because it's been a long time coming and I will leave it at that since you and I have been able to talk about them. Mm, yes, been many, many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. This was exactly what I needed. So I guess keeping you up to... 1 a.m. in the morning was worth it after all. I've had a great time. (laughs) (laughs) And to all you listeners, those who are able to appreciate all of this episode and those who are only able to appreciate part of it, I assure you that we have many more conversations to come. As next time, we'll start discussing chapters 17 through 20 on another trip through the wind door. Take care. And that's it for another bunch of chapters. We'll be recording again on June 4th, if all goes well, but given my extended working hours, I can't promise that we'll get back on a weekly release. All I can promise is that what you hear will be worth the wait. I went through many ideas for what music to end this episode on. Devastation feels like a frustratingly ironic place to end, given our current turmoil coming from the most recent school violence in Uvald, Texas. I swung from hopeful music to sad music, and finally to something more indicative of my own anger regarding my country. Once upon a time, my preferred song for moments like these was Scream, by Michael and Janet Jackson. Unfortunately, I don't really feel I can enjoy that piece anymore, given one of its authors, so instead I pick a version of a song from a group on the other side of the pond. Until next time... I give you the Prodigy remix from Oasis, Falling Down. Catch the wheel, the brakes, the butterfly. I cry the rain, it fills the ocean wide. I try to talk with God to know Calling up in and out of nowhere Said if you won't save me Please don't waste my
We begin with the tail end of a conversation on Multiverse of Madness, don't worry, no spoilers, primarily because of the fascinating little anecdote that Toby told me about a certain other Marvel actor. When one thing doesn't quite hit, it's okay, because Marvel will inevitably have something come up in a little way down the line that will probably knock our socks off, and it won't always be the same things that do it for the same people. I think we're all hoping for Miss Marvel to just, like, really hit it, and it might be that it, like, you know, there's some bits See, that, that, that would really almost hits it. That would almost be more disappointing if it doesn't find a way to knock mm. it out of the park, because I've never had all that much invested in Doctor Strange. It's just like, mm -hmm. you know, I know he's a part of the Marvel Universe. I like Benedict Cumberbatch okay in the roles that he's been in, but I was primarily interested in it in the aspect of it being a continuation to the overall story mm -hmm. and because I was interested in seeing what they were going to do with Wanda and mm -hmm. with America Chavez. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the stuff that they did with Wanda and the stuff that they did with America Chavez were the things that were disappointing to me. Like, just like when I was watching Hawkeye, I was watching Hawkeye primarily for Great Harper, and then mm -hmm. I was watching a little bit for Echo, and then I was really watching it for Kate Harper and Yelena. You mean Kate that... Bishop? Wow, okay, yes, Kate Bishop. You have to know... say her full name, Greg <laughs> Downing. <laughs> Who the fuck is Kate Harper? I don't even know. Oh, right, no, wow, Kate Harper is a character from, uh, put a penny in the jar, The West Wing. Greg, you're always on about West Wing. You need to watch more TV. It's not you. You can't have one set of cutlery and one DVD box set on shelf. You need to expand. Um. Uh, well, okay. Everything that we put in that was potentially going to be outtakes mm. uh, from the last recording, I ended up doing nothing with that because it felt like we talked too much about being sick, which is kind of disgusting. But this, this is going to go in the outtakes. <laughs> I can guarantee you that right there. Did I ever tell you that my old boss was, like, essentially gym buddies with Florence Pugh? Wow, that's a hell of a story. Yeah, no, she apparently, uh, I never, like, quite sort of pursued it to get the full story, but I think when she was training for that film that was the sort of wrestling, independent wrestling federation thing that I forget the name of, but was apparently very good, mm -hmm. uh, when she was training up for that and also evidently Black Widow, because that would have been in production like quite a long time ago by this point. She was training in an Oxford-based gym. And I think even before that, but uh, my this was the guy who worked at... Um, well, I won't sort of give that away in Kate. I, I don't know. But uh, when the pub I used to work at... My boss there would uh, work out there and he just got to know her. I don't know if he sort of knew who she was initially mm. because I think we've all become aware of the punissance in mm. recent years. But uh, he got uh, to know her and his friends and I think was basically just kind of rooting for her the whole way. So mm. it's just been... he's He's been happy on her behalf and I don't know if she's returned to that and he's sort of kept touch but you see it from the sounds of it they had a decent like you know she was a cool person to know in the gym so that's yeah. really neat it's not exactly an exciting story when i uh, put it on paper but florence Pugh is just exciting in general and mm -hmm. any future project she's in i'm 
absolutely there for. There will always be little things that, to me, are kind of a reminder of joy in the presence of disappointment. You're a reminder of joy in the presence of disappointment. Greg, that is absolutely what I aspire to be and the (laughs) highest compliment. And at this point, I will keep this completely concise and just say, (laughs) at home, in the cinema, whatever the format, please see my new favorite movie, Everything (laughs) Everywhere, all at once. I promise. I'm definitely (laughs) going to see it. I did see it, and maybe next time you'll get to hear some non-spoilery discussion on it. I have seen a good portion of The Lost Mm. City by now. Mm. I got like about 35 minutes left. Ah. But the one with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. Is he as cronky as I was led to believe? (laughs) He is playing the himbo to the hilt. Not quite on a cronk level, but, but pretty close to it. That's high praise because Kronk is really the sort of the template and Mm -hmm. everyone goes from there, really. So kudos to him for pulling it off. If Disney ever do their live action remake, then I think we know who to cast as Kronk. But I mean, it's kind of surprising Mm -hmm. just on the level of even the henchmen almost Mm -hmm. seem to know what kind of movie they're in. Oh, I love seeing Daniel Radcliffe playing the cross between an Indiana Jones villain and Justin Hammer from Iron Man 2. It's it's beautiful to watch. Uh, I <laughs> I fucking love Daniel Radcliffe. He's he's had like just he's made all the right choices, I think, and he had every incentive in the world to be someone who, like, the person who was tied to their source of rising fame Mm -hmm. and to just kind of be conflicted of that, but he didn't miss a beat and absolutely stood by the right flag and Mm -hmm. uh, it has white and pink and blue. Yeah, no, he's great. And I am now very curious who I would want to see him play in the MCU. Maybe a bad guy. Uh, <laughs> but That would be... Very, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to give that one some thought. The person who keeps this embodiment of hope and momentum moving... I don't know what that sound was, but I think that uh, might it... have been Steamheart uh, falling apart. Um... <laughs> no, no, sorry, that was a notification. Damn updates. <laughs> I, I thought, no, it was a notification. I don't know why it made a noise. Sorry, it wasn't a Discord notification, which I always turn off before recording, but it was something else. Harry looking, it's like, God damn, no, I don't want to send an error report. No. <laughs> <laughs> During our second recording, at one point Toby held up his finger, took off his headphones, and left the room. This was my immediate response. Please don't die. I don't know what you experienced over there, but you just suddenly felt like you were hearing something and walked out of the room. I really hope I don't suddenly hear a blood-curdling scream, and you come back through the door bloodied and say that you were just attacked by Wendigos or something. I'm so sorry to interrupt, and I hope I don't cut the momentum. A little bit jumpier at uh, sort of unknown noises when it's just me around. It's also a relatively quiet flat, so 
I wasn't sure what I was hearing and if it was from out in the corridor or like actually in the flat. So I just had to, you know, check around, make sure everything was okay and also lock up. But anyway, it's all good. Please uh, continue if you can remember your train of thought. Honestly, you were making me worry there for a second because I was in my mind, I was thinking to myself that you were suddenly going to walk into the kitchen and see this enormous that the walls were covered with Garfield with his head saying to you, I'm so hungry, John. Greg, why would you do this to me? (laughs) I'm sorry. That's immediately where my brain went when you left the room. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope he comes back. This is past half midnight where I am. I joke about Wendigos. I can't deal with Garfield, okay? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Garfield and friends. Friends are there. To help you get started, to give you a push on your way. Friends are there. To turn you around, get your feet on the ground for a brand new day. They'll pick you up when you're down. Help you swallow your pride when something inside's got to break on through to the other side. Friends are someone you can open up to When you feel like you're ready to flip When you've got the world on your shoulders Friends are there to give you a tip Friends are there when you need them They're even there when you go For a walk in the park or a shot in the dark Friends are there I don't care But friends will care for you So if someone wants you to change the channel, kids, just say no.